I also think it's important to help our students to understand that racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, Islamophobia, and all the other isms that are out there, they exist. All we can do is each and every one of us get up and try to make a difference in the world to make it better. And for me, that's not about brainwashing anyone to any one particular philosophy, but it's helping them to understand that we're all connected in this thing. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Now here's your host, Megan Hayes. Dr. Damon Williams is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in strategic diversity leadership, youth development, corporate responsibility, educational achievement, social impact, and organizational change. Celebrated as a visionary and inspirational global thought leader and a trailblazer, he is one of the world's foremost authorities on diversity, equity, and inclusion, chief diversity officers, student achievement, and driving social impact and organizational change in the higher education, corporate, K-12, and social sectors. He founded the Division of Diversity, Equity, and Educational Achievement at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and served as a senior leader, building the Division of Multicultural and International Affairs at the University of Connecticut. For four years, he served as Senior Vice President and Chief Education Officer at the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. He currently serves as the Chief Catalyst and Founder of the Center for Strategic Diversity, Leadership, and Social Innovation, LLC, and Senior Scholar and Innovation Fellow for Wisconsin's Equity and Inclusion Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Williams authored the best-selling book, Strategic Diversity Leadership, and co-authored The Chief Diversity Officer, Strategy, Structure, and Change Management, both in 2013. His most recent publication is Voice, Choice, Access, and Passion, Preparing the Centennial Generation for Leadership. He earned his Ph.D. from the University of Michigan Center for the Study of Higher and Post-Secondary Education, and both his master's degree in educational leadership and his bachelor's degree in sociology and black world studies from Miami University. A founding architect of the Inclusive Excellence Concept with the Association of American Colleges and Universities, Dr. Williams developed a national Inclusive Excellence Tour with a vision to empower 1 million leaders and 5,000 institutions with a message of strategic diversity leadership. Through this project, he has worked with colleges and universities, Fortune 100 companies, foundations, and government agencies as keynote speaker, strategist, educator, and social impact leader. He is at Appalachian this week as part of this project. Dr. Damon Williams, welcome to Appalachian State University, and welcome to Sound Effect. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Well, we're really glad to have you. I wanted to try to start sort of big picture. Um, In your books, you dedicate quite a bit of text to defining diversity. This is also something that we've worked to do at our institution. I don't think that's unique, um, and it proves to be a very difficult task. So why is talking about what diversity is so difficult to do, particularly in in an academic setting? You know, when we actually sat down to write um, the definition of diversity in Chapter 3 of Strategic Diversity Leadership, what we found was that um, visiting different institutions, if you had 20 people in the room, you get 20 different definitions. Some people are going to be defining in terms of race. Others are going to be defined in terms of gender. Others are going to be defining in terms of LGBTQ. Uh, Still others may be defining, no, it's about access to the institution. Or others, it's about the campus climate. And what we realized is that we had to really wrap our hands around it and to provide some conceptualization of of what's a big idea and a big concept, which is becoming more important in the 21st century. And so across uh, the 10 chapters of the 
the book, What is Diversity, actually is the longest chapter and the most complex chapter. And so we really wanted to provide some guidance to help institutions not just define diversity broadly, but also to talk about diversity as it relates to creating a learning environment that is going to be enriching and driving of stronger educational outcomes for our students. So the way we define diversity is broadly with a lot of different identities as a part of that, which is diversity. But we think it's important for institutions to also frame that same diversity as a part of creating a rich learning environment in the classroom, outside the classroom, that's going to accelerate our students to being leaders for the 21st century. So I've heard you talk about uh, diversity work in an organizational setting and how it's as much change management as it is diversity education. Can you explore that a little bit? Sure. Um, Probably the thing that has most made my work uh, well known is not that it was all about the diversity side of it, but it was about the systematic strategy, leadership development, culture evolution, Uh, deliberate practice, the tactical ideas that are part of managing change. I'll never forget, I was uh, a doctoral student uh, years ago. I was doing all my research on issues of diversity and inclusion as a grad student. And it was before I had declared my, my major focus in my program. And my faculty member came to me and he said, Williams, he said, are you going to be another one of those diversity guys that just spends all their time defining the problem? Or are you going to be one of those people that can actually help others to do something about it? And it went off in my mind's eye almost like a light bulb. And Tupac Shakur says that thug life hitting like the Holy Ghost. And I think that issues of organizational strategy and development and change management hit me like the Holy Ghost, too. And, <laughs> and so it was in that moment where I really started to uh, hone out an organizational lens and wanted to develop myself as an organizational strategist who does research and thinks and does stuff in the area of moving organizations and makes the choice to move issues of diversity and inclusion versus someone who's an expert in diversity and inclusion and is trying to figure out how to get something done. I really wanted to bring together this idea of diversity, inclusion, and change in dynamic synergy and wanted my work to really be about empowering leaders to get things done. And that meant helping them to understand strategy, structure, processes, change management, uh, leadership development, accountability, incentives, infrastructures, things that are actually going to help you move the needle. Yeah. That's so important because I think we talk so much about what what we want to do. And you talked earlier about the why and why it's so important. But but that how piece, you know, you can get stuck in that, oh, <laughs> especially in academia. I think. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a big believer in the statement that uh, vision without execution is del- delusion. So if we don't have a clear sense of where we want to go, we can't get there. But just as it's important to have a North Star of where we want to go, we've got to have operational discipline in how we execute. And, you know, as I've been looking across the country, you see a number of institutions that have awareness. You see a number of institutions that are doing things and they have action. But the challenge for us uh, as an organizational sector uh, in higher education and, and even in the corporate sector as well, the challenge for us is around going from awareness to action to innovation and innovation Uh, for higher education is oftentimes around execution with a lot of operational discipline. So if this is what we're trying to go, this is the uh, intervention we're trying to put in place to do it. How do we do it at a really, really high level with a lot of rigor, a lot of consistency, a lot of focus? uh, And ultimately, that is what gets us breakthrough results, as opposed to just kind of playing at things. And then they are uh, inappropriately or, or Uh, loosely implemented, and then we don't get as much outcome uh, on the other side. Right. 
When you talk about innovation and strategy, I have heard you say before that innovation and strategy are about doing something different rather than about doing something the same. So in the strategy development work that you do with organizations, you've developed this hacking problem model. I'm really interested in that. Can can you talk about this model and and how it works, how it plays out? Sure. Um, In my last role, I was uh, Senior Vice President and Chief Education Officer at Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And in that role, I did a lot of work with leaders in Silicon Valley. Um, that were supporting our Boys and Girls Clubs efforts. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about technology, a lot of times thinking about digital disruption, innovation, and really wanted to sharpen my toolkit in thinking as an innovator and understanding what that meant in the 21st century context in particular. As I stepped away from that role and stepped into this new chapter where I've been uh, leading, you know, this national campaign, I really wanted to go inside of what it means to innovate, right? And innovation starts with really asking some hard questions about what we're doing and not being uh, fearful of having sacred cows that we won't touch or not being fearful of uh, opening up conversations maybe that we tend to not have. So it starts with questions. I also think it's important to understand what others are doing and, and applying those things to our current context. I found that many will only look towards institutions that are their peer group or their aspirational group. Mm-hmm. But true innovators don't box themselves into that group alone. They're looking for solutions wherever they can find them and reapplying them. And then third, um, this idea of innovation is really about getting out of silos coming together intersectionally. You know, how does the race conversation intersect with the gender conversation, intersect with LGBTQ? You know, how do we uh, really engage in a dynamic conversation uh, involving not only student affairs, but also uh, academic affairs, um, our faculty? How do we really come together? And that's one of the strengths of higher education, right? It's shared governance, it's collaborative energy, but how do we really come together and build dynamic solutions that, that bring us to our fourth element of innovation, that's really having this bias towards action and experimentation. Um, huge, huge believer that we've got to launch, you got to start, you got to get things done. Um, we've, we, we spend a lot of time in analysis paralysis mm-hmm. uh, in the academy, right? It's the, the gift and the curse, right? The gift is the, the collegiality, the, the shared conversation, the really going deep on issues. That's all a part of the gift. The curse of it is it takes us 18 months to, to get anything done. 24 months to get anything done. And what's happening is the world is spinning faster than ever before. Technology means we're more closely connected. When you're more closely connected, things happen faster. Everything's moving faster. State legislatures want things to be done quicker. Political leaders want things to be done quicker. Corporate leaders are looking for things to be done quicker. Our students are expecting things to be done quicker. And so we have to pick up the pace. And so as we're building out pilots, There's nothing more important when you're developing a new initiative than interacting with your marketplace, right? So faculty members, they know this intuitively. When they write a paper, they send their paper to a conference. They're interacting with their marketplace. And then they improve it. Then they go big and send it to a journal. We have to have many more pilots and things that we're trying that poke the box, that disrupt, that are different, that are going to allow us to be on the pathway to understanding what works. And then once we know what works, we have to scale up. 
Uh, and that's another challenge that we have because we're so decentralized. Mm-hmm. So if it works in this space, you got to scale it up across the enterprise, knowing you may have to adapt it. That's a part of the scaling process. But we've got to have more of a bias towards action, experimenting with things that poke the box, um, clarifying them, uh, interacting with the marketplace, improving them, scaling up what works. And then the last thing is we just need more courage. People have to have more courage to do things differently, whether it's making the decision to say, hey, I'm going to mentor someone or that is from a different um, sexual orientation than myself or maybe has a different lived experience than myself. Um, I'm going to actually reach out and, uh, and, and really get to know this person uh, and invite them to lunch. Um, or it's saying, you know what, I don't know much about this inclusive teaching thing, but I'm going to go and talk to the chief diversity officer. I'm going to go talk to some folks in faculty affairs, see if there's some conferences I can check out, see if there's some books I can check out, see if there's some podcasts I can look into. Um, It's really having that bias towards doing things differently. And that takes courage, uh, whether you're a dean, a faculty, a student, a department head, uh, or someone that works in the communications area. Yeah, I mean, because as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about the importance of that intersectionality, because if you're trying to speed things up, and yet you're trying to be inclusive, in some ways, those two things seem to be, (laughs) you know, kind of pulling in opposite directions, almost. And so it seems like, and also then the... I think in academia, we're supposed to be experts, we're supposed to be good at this stuff. And so if we don't do it right, or we start doing it wrong, then we can get into that paralysis mode as well. Absolutely. You know, that idea of, uh, I've been, you know, people have, have questioned, uh, they said, well, you know, Dr. Williams, you said, you know, we need to go faster. Does that mean we need to not be as engaged in uh, achieving buy-in? You know, everybody talks about buy-in, buy-in, buy-in. First off, buy-in is a fallacy. <laughs> you know, people never buy into something, quote unquote. What people want is engagement. See, in the academy, you always are wrong if you don't give people an opportunity to engage. If you have given them a chance to give their perspective, if you've given them a chance to be heard, if you've given them a chance to shape the idea, they can generally go with the outcome. The challenge comes is when you don't create that opportunity and context for the engagement. So Peter Senge, the author of The Dance of Change, you know, he talks about this idea of the dance of change and the importance of, of engaging in these moments where we pull people into the conversation and help them to shape and thought partnership where we want to go. What I'm saying is not that we shouldn't do that. We should absolutely do that. It's essential. But what I'm saying is how you speed it up. Right. Can you do it in one semester, not two? Can you do it in two months, not eight? Can you engage uh, using digital tools that allow for you to create a more expedited way of getting to the same outcome? Can you get a small group together and rapid prototype the concept? And then you're shopping a more fully formed concept that people are working from as opposed to starting with a total open-ended slate. So those are just some practices or uh, techniques of uh, accelerating the change journey, which I think are really important for DNI, diversity and inclusion related work, but also to just accelerating our institutions uh, in a faster response to a rapidly changing world. Sure. So this is this is one of my burning questions, <laughs> um, and and it's about resiliency, and I'm really interested in exploring that concept because I think it's one thing to develop the skills that we all need to succeed in environments that are difficult, sometimes even dangerous. You know, we need to be able to go out into the world and experience things that are uncomfortable, put us out of our element, survive even in maybe places that you know don't feel safe to us or aren't safe. 
it's another to transfer that responsibility for some of the unconscionable behavior from those who are empowered to those who are less empowered or even disempowered. So I feel like as an institution, we are wrestling with how do we encourage the development of resiliency while also taking, sharing, owning responsibility for what needs to change. Hmm. So I guess my question is, um, have you seen that before? And what's your insight and, and thought about kind of where that sweet spot is almost between, you know, making sure that we're preparing students to go out into a difficult, challenging world and be okay, know that they've got the tools and the skill set to be okay, but not make it all their responsibility and all their problem to figure out how to do that. Hmm. That's a meaty question. <laughs> it's a meaty question. You know, a, a couple of things. Um, and, and inside that question, I think you see the the true complexity of these dynamics uh, and these uh, and the reality of doing this work. Particularly, you're thinking about it not just in the ecosystem of higher ed, but you're thinking about how uh, an institution like Appalachian State, you know, is nested in a community, is nested in a state, is nested in a politic, is nested in alumni context and uh, a broader context uh, societally. And there's a lot of uh, permeable things flowing back and forth. And that complexity can get overwhelming, I think, at times. You know, I believe that in terms of uh, working with our students, a couple of things. One, I'm a big believer in helping our students to really understand how developing their skills and abilities to interact and lead in a diverse and global world is a uh, set of skills and tools that they need to have in their toolkit. Whether they want to be a healthcare leader and they've got to engage issues of culturally competent healthcare or ethnic or racial health disparities or cultural differences uh, that they see in patient populations, um, modalities to treatment, uh, whether you're talking about uh, working in industry and you're talking about working in a global connected marketplace or uh, understanding that women make you know most household decisions, talk about marketing to women versus to men versus to underrepresented minorities, um, you know, all of those things and everything in between, you know, from sport to media, cultural skills and the ability to lead in diverse contexts is important. So I think we have a real responsibility as educators to help our students to understand the world they're going into and to help them to have the types of in and out of class experiences that are going to get them leveled up and ready for that world. I also think it's important to help our students to understand that racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, Islamophobia, and all the other isms that are out there, they exist. We can't legislate them away. All we can do is each and every one of us get up and try to make a difference in the world to make it better. And for me, that's not about brainwashing anyone to any one particular philosophy, but it's helping them to understand that we're all connected in this thing at some level. And uh, in this country, to be a part of a, a diverse democracy, we need leaders uh, who understand or are empathetic for others. Uh, and I'm a huge believer that we have to close the empathy gap that exists uh, in our communities. Um, can you look at the world from someone else's perspective that's on your team? Can you look at the world from someone's perspective that maybe reports to you, that you report to, uh, a client that you're serving? That skill of empathy is so important. And that skill of empathy development is the, um, the foundation of connection. And I talked about this this morning in a number of my talks, but this idea of the ABCs um, and Dr. Beverly Tatum, a colleague of mine, uh, president emeritus of Spelman College, shared this with me. Uh, it's this idea of the ABCs and 
Uh, this work is about affirming uh, identity. It's about building community and it's about cultivating leaders. And a key aspect of that is what we do in terms of helping uh, to bring more empathy to the world and to the work that we're doing and to uh, individuals. So along those lines, do you think it's good for everyone to feel like an outsider at some point in their lives? Absolutely. Um, You know, it's I don't believe that the most growth happens by playing it safe in the middle. You know, um, in life, whether you're talking about uh, the work that you do as an athlete, pushing yourself in athletic training, uh, the work that you do as a leader, taking expansion assignments, uh, broadening assignments, uh, the work that you do maybe as a student going to do study abroad, uh, the work that you may do as a student leader uh, going into a student organizational context that's totally different than you. Uh, there was a student, a white woman, white female student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she was a part of the African Student Association. And I never forget, I met her first year, and I was like, where did that come from? She was like, well, she was like, I was always kind of fascinated about Africa. And, you know, there was this African Student Association and my roommate was of African descent and she was going to it. And I went to a meeting with her and I had asked her the question, can I go as a white female from, you know, Madison, Wisconsin? And her roommate was like, yeah, absolutely. Come. And she said, and I went and she's like, and it was cool. And she was like, I'd never been in a space like that where I was the only person uh, of my background in the room. She was like, I felt scared, but I was with my friend and they were welcoming. She was like, and now I'm a member. And it's those experiences where um, there's dissonance in our lives, right, that allow us to develop. And it's in those moments where I believe we can become our greatest selves. Uh, but we don't become our greatest selves by playing it safe. We become our greatest selves by pushing ourselves to the margin and not living in fear. See, fear is the enemy. And when we are fearful of difference, when we're fearful of being outside of our comfort zone, then what we do is we stymie our ability to become great. Uh, and I believe that these experiences outside a comfort zone where you are the other, where you are outsider, uh, if you approach them with humility, uh, I believe that the benefits that come on the other side uh, are difficult to quantify. One thing I'd, I'd love for you to address, because I think we need to address it here at a predominantly white institution, is is this difficulty in creating space and conversations where we ask, you know, what do we need to do to better include and represent underrepresented people? And, you know, I was a, I've certainly been the only woman in the room and been asked to speak for all women. And that's kind of ridiculous and uncomfortable. It's also set up, I think, for failure. But but even with that said, you know, we still have to ask those questions, don't we? I mean, am I thinking about this wrong or, you know, we don't want to tokenize, right? We don't want to be tokens. Yeah. And yet when there aren't very many people in the room to represent don't we have to step up and represent? Yeah, it's a great uh, question, and it actually came up earlier today. There was a uh, some folks said, you know, um, and they used the language, their language more than mine. They said minoritized communities, meaning women, LGBTQ, uh, underrepresented groups. They said uh, oftentimes, you know, uh, others are learning about diversity on the backs of mm. those individuals who, right. to your point, you know, have to be the spokesperson or, or, or offer a perspective. And it can and, be so exhausting. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> There's a burden that's associated with that. Sure. And, and so a couple things. One, um, I believe in elevating the authenticity of that statement. It, it is a burden and, and it is. And there's a cost that is wrought upon individuals, you know, who, who have had to play that role. Um, and I think that's very real. And I think it has deleterious uh, mental health impact. Mm-hmm. It can have deleterious physical 
uh, impact. Uh, it can have deleterious academic impact and sociocultural impact. So I think we have to be mindful of that reality. And I think that uh, in our work with um, different student communities, I think we have to make that a part of our health and wellness agenda uh, in multicultural student centers, in uh, areas of uh, student uh, counseling or student academic advising, um, uh, even helping our faculty to understand, you know, some some subtle principles of, of how to be affirming and in, in, uh, in that way. So a part of it, the response for me is I think that we have to really recognize and understand it. Another part of it is I think we have to do a lot more to help individuals who are part of empowered communities understand how to be allies in those moments, mm -hmm. understand how to be full contributors in those moments, understand how to say, you know what, I don't think we should be asking anybody to make a uh, statement about, you know, the entire race or entire group because I don't, you know, but understanding to how to help them to become a part of that conversation because they have to be full participants and contributors in that, not just underrepresented groups. Um, sure. And then the third part I would say is, you know, and, and I've been criticized for this, but as I talk to underrepresented communities and if that's the cost, right, that's the role that you have to play. Uh, to help uh, our communities, our society to improve and get better, then you're part of a long line sure. across generations yeah. of folks who've made sacrifices to move the cheese. And this is just your role to play. And you should thank your stars that that's all that your role is at this point. Uh, and so I'm a huge believer that to those whom much is given, much is expected. Uh, we are in the midst of a uh, change project in our institutions to e continue to evolve them, to make them more inclusive for women and minorities and more diverse and to embrace diversity as a value that's really lived in our systems. There's a, that's a change effort and it's, it's a process of getting there. And if your work, uh, uh, the role that's asked of you inside of that is this then that's just a part of it. And and like I said, that's a much easier role to play than what was played in the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, let alone the 1800s. And and that's hard uh, for many of our students, underrepresented uh, and majority, because they maybe don't see themselves as a part of that continuum in the same way. There's been something that's been broken there that we're seeing with the centennial generation uh, and the millennials as well. But in the same instance, the millennials and the centennials, are they have a consciousness to them mm -hmm. about the world. They want to change the world, um, but they want to do it in some ways that are on their own terms and not as a part of this continuum, but a, a part of kind of a new moment that they're defining and controlling. And, and that's a part of their value system. And it'll continue to shake its way out going forward. Uh, but, you know. I say racism, sexism, homophobia is just a reality. It's a gravity problem, and we need everybody, all hands on deck, doing something about it. That's a really good point, uh, the the history piece and, and the context piece. I know my, my great aunt used to say, every night before you go to sleep, you got to think of 10 things you're grateful for, even if you had a really bad day. And that's kind of almost in the same vein, you know what I mean? Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, there, you know, having been on this campus for, you know, over 20 years and seeing the work that we have done with, you know, started with the Women's Center and we got an, you know, an LBGDQ center and, you know, these a multicultural student center, you know, none of those were there when I was a student here. And so, you know, I'm, I think there is something to being aware of when, at what point in history, those things became sort of part of our everyday culture, our everyday right. norm. So, yeah. You know, and it's, um, 
and the presence of those centers and those spaces are the outcome of Appalachian State trying to build capacity uh, to include, right? Capacity to create an experience that was inclusive and excellent for all, because oftentimes the pathway to a sense of belonging and a pathway to a sense of connection and affiliation comes through those uh, uh, identity reflecting spaces that affirm you in a way that you can then move into the broader community. Um, and they're not spaces of segregation in a negative sense. They're really spaces of solidarity and identity affirmation, which then becomes the gateway or the platform that allows you to move into the broader milieu and, and, and have the type of uh, experience campus wide uh, that ultimately all of our students have to have and should have. Can you talk about the power of what can be achieved by working behind the scenes and with those who may have quiet voices, not the loud voices? Yeah. You know, oftentimes, and I talk a lot about courageous leadership, um, that innovation is um, uh, requires leaders who are willing to step up and stand out and be courageous. But that doesn't all the time necessarily be no, mean noisy. Um, sometimes it's the quiet voice uh, of connection, the quiet voice of mentorship, the quiet voice of one-to-one -one conversation and partnership, uh, the quiet voice of someone who's maybe using their social capital as a faculty member who's tenured or their social capital as a uh, white male or their social capital as someone who's uh, heterosexual, but using that capital quietly in the benefit of diverse groups, quietly towards uh, the benefit of an inclusion agenda that maybe doesn't uh, become aware, uh, everyone doesn't become aware of it, but it it's really hallmarked to making a real ripple effect. Um, I'm a big believer that we've got a uh, that we that change happens on our campuses oftentimes uh, analogous to a political campaign, right? And so when a, when you're executing a political campaign, you just want more and more people coming into your political energy. Uh, and what I mean here by this is it's not just those who are making the biggest speeches, but it's those who are on the ground who maybe have a quiet belief that being more inclusive and being more connected and mentoring and, and supporting and sponsoring others is an important part of what makes this place great. And they don't have to sing it or set or say it, but if they can quietly move forward and start doing some of it, when that student comes into your office and you know, you're the first frontline receptionist and that person looks scared and you can tell they're, they're, they're uncertain about going into financial aid and it's how you connect it with that person and, and how you, uh, uh champion their humanity, um, or it's the student who's elevating that, hey, you know, I want to use this gender pronoun or this naming convention, don't know how to do it, and it's how you connect with them. Um, and that maybe doesn't become public anywhere else, but you're finding ways each and every day and even the smallest ways to move an agenda forward. Over time, I just have to believe that that's what makes the difference in our communities and our society and our lives. So you talked a little bit about role modeling. I think um, I think a lot of us think we have an understanding of what role modeling is. Um, I've also heard you talk about avoidance modeling. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about those two concepts? Because I think we might have more to learn in both of those areas, <laughs> actually. So. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in uh, role models and avoidance models. And, you know, one of the quickest ways to achieve the same type of outcomes that someone else has achieved that you want to achieve in your life as a leader is to reverse engineer um, what they were able to do and how they were able to do it and what were their action steps, both as a role model, but also as an avoidance model of steps that you don't want to put in place. And that becomes 
for me, a really important part of how I try to learn. So I'm a very big believer in learning in four dimensions. And so the first dimension is intentional academic study, right? So it's going to class, it's taking online programs, it's uh, reading books in a given area, but it's intentional kind of traditional academic learning centered stuff. Um, uh, YouTube is the most powerful learning platform in the history of the world. People don't see it that way. Those who do are unlocking incredible levels of human potential um the second dimension is my kids will be very happy to hear that oh it is <laughs> they spend it a is. lot of time on it YouTube. is it depends how they do it but <laughs> it truly is and um but that second dimension is through experiences right so we learn fundamentally through this intentional study then the second dimension is through experiences right so it's you know leading an organization playing a role having a job having an internship doing a study abroad what we talk about high impact learning that second dimension of how we learn the third dimension of how we learn is really having uh, mentoring relationships learning relationships in your lives and so I always talk about having um, peer mentors having uh, my board of advisors, and then having uh, some aspirational mentors that uh, I interact with. Now, those aspirational mentors, I might only be able to get to them once a year because they are that influential and they're that, you know, far out of reach. I've got a board of advisors. I can get to them at a moment's notice. I've got a group of peer mentors that are at my level and we're struggling with these things together. We're sharing everything we know. And then I've got mentees and I am sharing what I know too. So this idea of a multidimensional set of mentoring relationships is this third dimensional. So intentional study experiences, mentor, uh, learning relationships. And then the fourth dimension of learning for me is, um, this idea of observations. Hmm. and observing what's going on, role models, observe, uh, 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 avoidance models, and observing the world around me. Individuals that are able to move uh, the fastest and are able to get the most done, they learn in four dimensions. They have a clear sense of their passion and their purpose and the pathway that sits at their motivation core, and then they activate what's at the core through those four different dimensions, and it's almost like a wheel. So every course, every leadership experience, every relationship, every uh, role model makes the wheel turn, makes the wheel turn, makes the wheel turn. And what happens over time is the more you do the right things, the more centrifugal force that your wheel has, your flywheel, to leverage the concept that Jim Collins talked about in Good to Great, and then it has its own energy. And you don't even have to touch it. It just keeps spinning. And then new energy comes in, new energy comes in. And people ask me, you know, Damon, how were you able to become a 28, 29 year old assistant vice provost, you know, 34 year old vice provost, vice chancellor, you know, do this, do that, write these things. I have a very clear sense of my leadership flywheel and everything in that flywheel is building and manifesting itself. And over time, uh, it just starts to spin in such a way that you get these incredible breakthrough results. And that's where you see individuals having real deep impact. I've always wanted my life to be about impact, helping each other, uh, helping others, sharing the things I know, creating connection, um, and, and and that's what this flywheel for me is all about. And when I talk to students, um, probably the thing that most excited me when I moved around the country in my last role and I got a chance to work with, you know, just uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of young people across this country, 
um, Boys and Girls Clubs of America. So search 4 million young people annually. You know, big shout out to Boys and Girls Clubs. I will always love Boys and Girls Clubs. They do incredible work helping students to find their pathway and have safe spaces. Um, but the most important, some of the most important work I did then and even now, it's when I have a chance to talk to students about finding their pathway and unlocking their purpose through questions and lo- unlocking their purpose through movement. Um, people think that unlocking purpose and passion is, is about, um, it's about it coming down from the mountaintop. Mm-mm. It's about having a general direction and walking. Every step we manifest it, every step we clarify, if we keep asking questions and if we're working that four dimensional model, um, uh, you unlock so many things. So I love to share that philosophy with students, particularly really early so they can build it out. Uh, and then touch base with them a couple years later and I'll say, Doc, Dr. Williams, oh my gosh, and I'm doing this and I work this model. There's nothing that's more enriching as an educator than that. So how should young people go about choosing their mentors? You know, um, a couple things. One, sometimes we choose our mentors and, um, you know, I get a lot of people that come up and say, hey, will you mentor me? And what I say to them is, we can have a learning relationship. Now, you have to understand that there's multidimensional ways of accomplishing that. So a learning relationship is you can follow me on Instagram. You can follow me on Twitter. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, I tell folks all the time, if you drop me an email, I will respond. So we can have a learning relationship. Are you going to be able to get me on the phone to to kind of you know help you work through a problem in a different type of way? Are you going to get, be able to uh, ask me to be a sponsor for you and write a letter of nomination to help you access an opportunity. That's a higher level. We have to work to that. Mm-hmm. And a relationship that starts very casually could manifest and evolve to that, but you can't expect that an individual is going to automatically give you that. It's a journey of developing that. Another piece of this too is I think that uh, we oftentimes don't take advantage enough of peer mentoring. You know, if you are uh, connected to the people that are, you know, generally kind of in the same experience you are, and you're authentically and with humility sharing what you know, sharing what you understand, listening, then what you can do is you start building something magnificent. Some of the greatest things I've been able to accomplish happened when I just was humble and I shared and I connected. For example, I was 25 years old and I had a $75,000 consulting project as a doctoral student. Who has a $75,000 <laughs> consulting project as a doctoral student doing a program evaluation? But um, an individual came to me and said, Damon, you know, we'd like you to come in and do this training for uh, this um, this uh, youth development program. And I had been working with the Children's Defense Fund doing youth development work. I was a doctoral student at the University of Michigan. They asked me to do this training program. And so the director said, what do you want to do the training session financially? I was like, I'm a servant leader. I don't want anything to do the training session. Like, what do you mean? She was like, no, 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 baby. I've got budget. She said, what do you want? And it was one of the important lessons that I learned about understanding that I had a talent uh, and skills and that there was a market value associated with that. And I believe that in this connection economy where everybody can have a website, have a YouTube, uh, you can be a brand. We more and more have to help our students to understand the principles of micro entrepreneurship. Um, now, this is obviously years ago before those things happened when I had this experience. And so I ultimately negotiated a small contract and, and did the, the consulting project with her. 
we finished it. I went very well. She then comes back to me and says, do you know anybody who does program evaluation? Now, see, I'm a, um, I'm a quick study. <laughs> and so the second question, I said, well, I know somebody who does program evaluation. What do you want? So she explained it to me, and I had taken a course on program evaluation, and I had worked on uh, one of my senior faculty members' research team, and so I had a pretty good understanding of what it would take. And the short of it is I ended up getting a $75,000 consulting project to execute this evaluation. And I went out and I, I got five of my colleagues who are all doctoral students who are really, really sharp. And we sat down and we figured it out together. And I tell that story because inside of it, I just believe that we have to help our students to have belief that they are enough, that they can do. But a key part of having that belief and being enough is the level at which you can connect with others to learn. See, what's on the other side of a great uh, outcome is probably a journey of learning. But we oftentimes don't commit ourselves to that journey of learning. I try to commit myself to that journey of learning and then get the right people around me and you can get great things done. And that's something I've learned very early on uh, as an undergrad. And even now, you know, as I'm doing the work I'm doing, it's the same thing. Same thing. So I'm going to um, kind of move outward a little bit, I think, philosophically. Um, you know, um, in looking at other countries and models, if we look at, at Germany or South Africa, for example, you know, what their societies have done that, that we haven't is make these nationwide reparations mm -hmm. for the just, you know, the atrocities mm -hmm. that they have societally. Um, 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 I'm not sure what the right word is, but, but um, you know, violently imposed on others in their in, in in their societies right and so so there doesn't seem to be an appetite for doing that yeah. in the united states right now um so you know with in the absence of that how can we do this hard work at the localized levels and really make any traction because it almost feels like you get a little bit ahead and then some sort of major action takes place and you know that 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 isn't happening on our campus or in our town and yet emotionally it has this huge impact on us and then we slide backwards um and we don't have that almost sort of societal backup that that's that those countries who have made those nationwide reparations have so yeah. i'm just kind of curious about how do we find traction in that environment uh, it's a great, that's a big question. You got it really big there on me. Uh, <laughs> you know, a couple of things uh, stand out in my mind's eye. One, the first thing that stands out in my mind's eye is, man, you know, why is it that we haven't been able to get to a place where we might make some level of a reparation? Yeah. And, you know, a part of it for me is, uh, and I don't think we ever will, um, I feel like there's a, uh, you know, there's a tremendous, uh, a there's elements of our country that uh, make us great, uh, you know, uh, the work ethic, uh, the, the buy your bootstraps kind of Protestant work ethic type of philosophical core, uh, the, 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 in some ways false belief that you know, individual manifest destiny. Um, and those things are such a powerful part of the ethos. Um, and they mask that just underneath all those concepts was, um, a, a real, um, orientation towards, uh, capitalizing upon the labor capitalizing upon the humanity of others to allow for this great nation to be built, whether it was, you know, native communities or African communities and um, never truly acknowledging 
you know, that reality. Yeah, because they uh, didn't get the bootstraps. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, but they built them for everybody else. Absolutely. And so there's an arrogance there and a, and a fundamental lack of humility, which is really a part of our DNA as a nation. It's the part that's not as, as uh, uh, something that we're probably, you know, some of us are not as proud of. Uh, so I don't know if we'll ever, uh, and I don't believe we'll ever get to that place of, of reparation. Um, wow. But the bigger question for me now is, how do we move forward though? And how do we get things done? And um, I stepped away from my work in higher education to go work at Boys and Girls Clubs of America uh, because it gave me a great opportunity to work at a different place in the ecosystem, to work in the corporate sector, to work at, you know, one of the greatest non-for-profits in the world, to work with, you know, I think, I think my team managed uh, about 250 corporate accounts. Wow. Um, so we work with everybody. And, you know, what I came to understand even more prominently was that to solve difficult and complex social challenges, it takes an ecosystem leadership perspective. It takes public-private partnership. It takes collective impact. It takes coming together, not just signing principles of, uh, uh, that are symbols of inclusion, but building real operational plans that are going to really uh, create a greater level of synergy between the players that are involved I was just in uh, Boone, Boone County on Saturday. So I'm in Boone, North Carolina today. I was in Boone County on Saturday in Columbia, Missouri. And it was uh, Inclusive Excellence Proclamation Day. So the university and the city of Columbia had come together uh, with a number of players in the city. And there was a mayoral proclamation. And they have a statement uh, of inclusive excellence that they've got a thousand leaders and I believe about 60 organizations that have signed on in the corporate, government, higher education community. So they're trying to move this thing forward. And my response to that was that's wonderful. Yeah. Because what it does is it creates a shared covenant of what we believe, a shared covenant of where we want to go, uh, a shared covenant. Um, that starts to create a a new cultural reality or a new cultural adobe of these ideas of inclusion and excellence being synonymous. I think that's a great thing. Um, it's but it's very similar to what the NCAA uh, did not too long ago with the coaches or excuse me the athletic directors. It's no different than what's happening right now in the corporate community in terms of corporations coming together uh, around various different uh, principles. It's no different than what President Obama put forward with the My Brother's Keeper initiative and Boys of Color. Uh, it hasn't moved from the level of being a philosophical cultural covenant to a collective impact initiative. See, that 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 elevation up strategically, what that means is we gotta we not only have this shared vision of what we want to do, we got some common indicators of how mm -hmm. we track in progress. We've got some conjoined tactics that different organizations are going to play a role of delivering that over time are going to lead to change. We've got a backbone organization that's going to be the backbone of the collective impact initiative. So to, to solve complex challenges over time in our communities, I believe, number one, we've got to create connection across the ecosystem, public and private college, universities, K through 12, higher education, corporations, not-for-profit government, really coming together to, to really focus on not just talking about things, but developing a shared covenant and then the next level up, developing collective impact efforts uh, that are going to really um, allow for some uh, aggressive change to happen over time. 
we're scratching at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was at Boys and Girls Clubs of America, you know, we're working with Disney, Toyota, University of Phoenix, you know, Taco Bell, Microsoft, you know, Justice, uh, Education, NASA, work with everybody, uh, work with all the foundations. And, you know, what I found is that oftentimes um, uh, we just couldn't seem to come together and really, you know, bring together the Y and the Boys and Girls Clubs and 4-H and the Girl Scouts and everybody coming together uh, because we would oftentimes get into our narrow self-interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was to say, I call us collegial competitors. Uh, you know, we love each other, but yeah. those Girl Scouts show up with those cookies. I'm telling you. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. But Boy Scouts have really good popcorn. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But, but this idea of just putting aside the yeah. differences and really getting in a shared place. Uh, uh, and really uh, aggressively trying to move efforts for, I think that's the only way we're going to really see some deep and material, material change. It's not going to be the government alone. It's not going to be any college or university. It's not going to be any foundation, even the Gates Foundation with all their resources. It's going to take really developing strong collective impact efforts. And um, I spent a lot of time really trying to level up my skills as a strategist to think uh, through the lens of collective impact because that is the only solution I can see to difficult and complex social challenges in this country. So this you've touched on a little bit, but I think this will kind of bring it all home, especially for our students. Um, There are many young people today, they're told by society, focus on this practical vocation so they can get a job. Then they go to graduation or some sort of key moment in their lives and they're delivered the classic, follow your passion, do what you love, the money will follow, those kinds of speeches. So I think there's this incredible challenge that we in higher ed face of helping young people balance this pragmatism with a sense of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, I'd like to ask you for a moment just to talk to our students and, and just what advice do you have for Appalachian yeah. students? You know, it's funny that that idea, follow your passion um, and the money will follow. It really became kind of in vogue. It was like after Steve Jobs gave his big uh, commencement speech at Stanford some years ago, uh, which is one of the most, uh, my understanding, is one of the most hit uh, YouTube videos, commencement videos ever. You know, it's like follow your passion. But the reality of it for our students is I this. I thought yours was pretty good. Just to oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, the thing I would say to students is is this. Number one is, um, you know, you have to ask yourself a lot of questions. Who do you want to be in this world? Um, what type of lifestyle do you want? Uh, what type of work makes you happy? Um, uh, what type of people do you want to be around? What type of person do you want to be? Uh, what type of sacrifice are you willing to make to get there? My first message to students is ask yourself a lot of questions and be naked to those answers. Don't run from them. The second thing that I would say to our students is choose a direction. Choose a direction. You can change, but choose a direction to start walking. Don't allow yourself to be frozen by not having total clarity. Choose a direction to start walking. The third thing that I would say is Um, As you are walking, everybody has an economic engine that has to be activated to take care of yourself. Some are fortunate that they've got a mother or a father that can underwrite things. Others are not. Uh, You've got to go out there and make those things happen on your own. Um, I was one of those persons that had to do that. I worked three, four jobs when I was an undergrad. Um, I've always had at least two or three sources of income. That's just the way I roll. Um, and embrace that. The beauty of this knowledge-based connection economy is there are more ways for you to make money uh, online and through connection than ever before. And I think that students should really lean into that reality. Um, Early on, I'm a huge believer in exploration, Um, but I'm also a big believer in uh, moving down a 
a pathway. Um, you don't have to know exactly where you are going to end up, but you got to start walking in a direction. And if you need to change it, that's fine. And the more questions you ask, the more you get clarity around what the North Star vision is. For me, I didn't know what job I wanted. What I knew is I wanted to be amongst the best in the world at diversity, inclusion and change, period. That's always been what's driven me. Not a job, not a role, not a salary. It's that. And I pay the price for that. And I encourage uh, our students to get a big picture idea of it and then just start walking and start lining up the academic piece, the credential piece, the self-directed learning piece, the experience piece, the role model piece, the observation piece and get that thing spinning. And what you find is that every step you take, more clarity comes. Every step you take, more clarity comes. And then you look up after one year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, and your dreams have become a reality. But you've got to make a choice and you've got to get a direction and a pathway um, and understand that if you are someone who's coming from a more economically vulnerable background, it's going to be harder for you. But that's okay. Because the greatness comes in how far you go from where you started. And I, I just don't buy into folks saying, well, I didn't have this and I didn't have that. Figure it out. See, as human beings, and, and I, I know I've got to go, but as human beings, when you've got a challenge in front of you, you've got to figure it out, you figure it out. Mm -hmm. When your doctor tells you, you got to lose weight or you're going to have this issue or, you know, when someone comes to you and says that, you know, you no longer employed and you have to find a job. When someone comes to you and says, if you don't make X, Y, and Z change, you're getting kicked out of school, you will figure it out. Mm -hmm. The power that comes in those who are self-aware enough to figure it out absent that external force. And you develop those muscles of figuring that out over time by taking these small steps. Small steps build up to big steps. The last thing I would say to our students, uh, just believe. You just have to have a deep belief in yourself. Uh, and the world is going to tell you you can't. Uh, there's going to be naysayers and haters that tell you you can't. Uh, but just have a deep, deep belief in yourself. Uh, uh, ignore the naysayers. Uh, and nothing is the final thing. Nothing. And I mean nothing. Nothing, 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 nothing trumps hard work. If you work your face off at something, you will be successful. Period. End of story. Wow. Well, Dr. Damon Williams, thank you so much for your time in the studio today. So um, you'll be working with students, faculty, staff, administrators. Yes. You're giving a public speech. For the next three days, you'll be on our campus. And I can't imagine a more important way to begin our semester or our year. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, App State Nation. It's been great. I look forward to rocking out with you all. I'm at D-A-W-P-H-D on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at www.drdamonawilliams.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.